69th session of the Queen's University of Belfast Literary and Scientific Society. this evening for this very special debate. Why is it special, we ask? Because I am hoping that it will be the first of our uh, beginning to be biannual debates uh, in the form of literary classics. So basically, the motion this evening, as most of you are well aware, is this house regrets the British Empire. This is in fact not the first time that this house has debated this particular motion. It was first debated approximately five years ago by the 164th session. Our intention is that uh, each semester, hopefully, See how this goes uh, tonight. We will pick uh, one motion from five years ago and redivide it, and you know, try and use it to uh, solidify the links to the alumni and yada yada yada. So hopefully, it will go very well indeed. So to kick things off this evening, I have just a few announcements to make. First of all, our uh, membership setup and whatnot has been in full force over the past couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully, everyone here is aware by now that if you wish to be a member. There's a, an online form that you need to fill out. It's very simple. Uh, we need just a few basic pieces of information uh, for the union, and there's a couple of other bits and pieces that are optional that we would just like to know. Uh, if you haven't already filled that in, the URL is signup, on one word, although case, dot uh, Yes, hopefully you can fill that out. You can fill it out before paying. You can fill it out after, but uh, you probably don't really want to do that because uh, it's just advisable if you fill it out before. Um, so yes, please make sure to do that. Uh, in the process of doing so, everyone who becomes a member, uh, we would very much like to get you added to our Facebook group called the Literary Forum. Uh, it's the best way to uh, keep informed about the goings on in the society and to involve yourself in some interesting and spirited and informed debate outside of the chamber. So yes, if you aren't already a member of that group, the Literary Forum, please uh, mention to any member of council, but ideally uh, add them as a friend on Facebook and message them saying, hello, I would like to be added to the Literary Forum, and we'll get you added right away. The second item is our storming trip is next week, next Wednesday in fact. So uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the motion that we shall be debating up there is this. House believes Western politics is inherently sexist. Uh, admittedly, this is one of the few times when the debate itself, the motion, is not really the main draw. It is, of course, the location. We shall be up at the Parliament building, the Northern Ireland Storm. And yes, it should be very interesting. We're hoping to get a tour. Uh, Miss Keira Campbell, who is not here tonight, uh, is hopefully going to arrange that for us. But yes, so that is uh, happening next Wednesday, the 18th. We are meeting here at 1. Uh, and our booking over at Storming is from 2 until 4. There's no, no cost to come along, you just have to be a member. Uh, and also, you will be paying for your own transport, but we're getting a bunch of taxis, and all in all, <coughs> to get there and back will probably cost about a fiver. Uh, so it's, hopefully that's amenable to you. Uh, yes, we hope to see you all there. I would note that if you're interested in attending that, you need to let me know tonight or by 9am tomorrow, but the storm requires that I have a, a list of all attendees to them by tomorrow, uh, end of day. So yes, storm trip, let me know tonight. Uh, also, got down here recordings, I'm not entirely sure why. We record the debates, be aware. Uh, if you'd rather not be recorded, that's fine. It's more work for the poor Mr. Bradley over here, but uh, they just basically get archived away and they're listened to by 100 people. So it's just a nice thing for posterity. Um, there was definitely another reason why that's on my list, but I've forgotten. Also, uh, this is a slightly tricky one. 
we need to have uh, basically not not really a general meeting of the house, but an informal general meeting of the house to discuss a tiebreaker amendment. Basically, this fellow down here, every election he stands in results in a tie. Uh, and we need, we have, at the moment, there is no provision in the Constitution to deal with that, which has caused quite a bit of a headache. So rather than the Council simply coming up uh, with a solution, it would be quite good to get the ordinary members involved in that as well. So originally when I made this note, I was going to announce that we're going to have like next Tuesday or something, but probably can't really just say that. So keep an eye for that. That will be posted about on, on the letter front. And you know, this is, the Constitution is the bedrock of this society, so if anybody can attend, we really need to do so, because this is not some opaque, no, not opaque, obscure, not quite. This is not some irrelevant matter that never comes up. This is quite important. Uh, yes, also, quite importantly, where are we? Mr. Dolan gives a wave. Gives a wave. Mr. Hickman gives a wave. Uh, Miss, is it Grace Connolly or Miss Connolly? Connolly. Miss Connolly gives a wave. Mr. Bryson gives a wave. And is Miss Perotti here? Sadly not. These fine uh, fellows, specimens of human beings, journeyed down to the foreign land and the hostile land of Dublin just this weekend past <laughs> to participate in the University College Dublin, right? Uh, Law Society InterVarsity Debating Competition. Uh, they did as well as the literature always does down south. And that is all I'll say on the matter. But nevertheless, they showed great uh, valour and spirit. And so I would urge the House to give them a round of applause for their It's not our fault. Uh, also, uh, I've been meaning to do this for a little while now. So, as most of you have seen, we have these lovely new designs. Oops, let me get out here. Membership cards and turn cards. Our old ones were rather plain, and the membership cards in particular were rather poorly designed. These ones, these glorious, lovely new designs, are all the work of the good technology officer, Mr. Matthew Bradley, over here. That. Uh, almost done, just one final item to announce. Uh, ooh. Where is he? I can't see. I believe Monday 30th, I'm definitely trying to find Colin. Where is he? There he is, Monday 30th. Yes. Monday 30th, uh, we shall be hosting a pub crawl, a Halloween pub crawl, but not just any pub crawl, a fancy dress pub crawl. Uh, the letter effect, actually, back in the day, about four or five years ago, I hope you'll back me up on this, Dr. Goss, had quite a good reputation for throwing quite a big fancy dress Halloween event thing. Uh, there are photographs online, which if I'd been more prepared would be shown right now, but I'm not, so never mind. But yes, we very much hope that you'll all participate. Uh, I don't have the specifics noted down here, so I will kick us over to, and ordinarily I would call him Con O'Neill or Mr. Social Officer, but Facebook informs me that I'm to refer to now as Plant Boy. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, uh, but nevertheless, Plant Boy, would you please give us a few details about this pub crawl? Um, um, there's a good free it, but still allowed to see if anyone wants to. It is on a very good one. Okay, so it's going to be the 30th, Monday the 30th. Uh, the prices still have to be decided depending on where the final place will be. It'll be in and around £8, uh, and that'll take probably three pubs and finishing in like a bar club sort of like. You know what it is. Um, 
Yeah, please go. Please get your friends to go. It would be great as many as possible. Uh, we're looking to hit like maybe close to like sixty, a hundred. Like it's all dependent on you and who you bring. And um, please do. It would be great. Fancy dress. Halloween's the next night, so you don't miss Halloween. That's better. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We'd love to see you there, uh, Mr. Delvin. Do you want to quick think about the uh, the other ID? Or uh, okay. Uh, so, it's next week we plan on sending two teams to the Irish Mace, that's on the 20th of October. It's, we have team spots still open for that, if you're interested, come and see me about that. At the same time, we've recently been contacted by the president of the University College Dublin Literary and Historical Society. They're hosting an IV next weekend, that's on the 21st and the 22nd. We weren't planning on going, but they contacted us asking us to send teams. So if anyone wants to, please get in touch with me about that. And that's about it for external stuff. Indeed. A minute. Uh, Mr. Hickman, Ms. Family, Mr. Bryson, it was good fun, the IV. You went to your right? Uh, yeah! Applaud <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, So yes, uh, final announcement I simply have is just, if you haven't paid for your membership yet, you can do that at the end. And if you haven't got a membership card yet, you can get that at the end. Uh, I would now um, like to welcome, to read the minutes of the second ordinary meeting, uh, this house believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism, the fine secretary, Mr. Peter Dunn. The third ordinary meeting of the 169th session of the Literary and Scientific Society took place on the 5th of October 2017 was attended by 68 members. The meeting was then kicked off with a welcome from President Mr. Calvin Black. After the minutes from the previous week had been read, private, private members' business was then begun by Ms. Kira Campbell, whose item of business had been emailed to her by her friend, Mr. Patrick Bain, she told me to mention in the minutes today. She also asked whether actions of Greenpeace should result in them being convicted as pirates, due to their illegal boarding of a ship, theft, and obstruction of the right of passage of a merchant vessel at sea. The question spurred many impassioned responses from various members of the House. A motion was then put forward by Ms. Kerr Campbell that this House would prosecute Greenpeace, Greenpeace as pirates. The vote read 32 in favour, 11 against, and 10 abstentions. Mr. Scott Moore pleaded that the House would mourn the untimely death of the elf on the shelf meat. Mr. Matthew Bradley, our very own tech officer, responded from a suitably cheery quote from Doctor Who, that everything dies, and that includes memes apparently. <laughs> President's questions were then begun by Mr. Matthew Sullivan, who asked what the President wanted for breakfast. The President thus, in an attempt to stop people asking the question in the future, responded with the incredibly dull response of shreddies and cranberry juice, continuing the theme of food from Mr. Sarah Campbell. He then asked the President if he considered his eating habits to be healthy. A defiant no was his response, but reasoning this was only because he didn't really eat. One can only imagine the busyness of our President running around, carrying out and presidential duties, I suppose. It's the root cause of this less than healthy eating habit. President Black then introduced our guest chair for the evening, Dr. Livingstone Thompson, who'd previously been a lecturer in the field of Islamic studies his opening address including a key piece of guidance to speakers, be careful that, that when speaking about Islam, you sh shouldn't pertain to one uniform religious community. President Black introduced the motion that this House believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism. He then took a vote on prior opinion, which read 31 in favour, 8 against, and 14 abstentions. 
Starting the debate off and speaking for the proposition, there's maiden speaker, Miss Aisha Balabas, <laughs> who started her speech by pro proclaiming she is living proof that you can be Western, liberal, and Muslim. As a passionate activist, she argues that LBGT plus rights are compatible with Islam. Prostitutes should not be harmed or punished. But underlying your argument was that many of the ideals that we now take to be Western or indeed liberal originated in Islamic majority countries. First to speak for the opposition was Mr. Ben Doherty. He starts his speech. Ben! Edmund. Edmund, sorry. Edmund He started his speech with a statistic. Now, who doesn't look at the statistics? In the Huffington Post poll, over 50% of people believe Islam is a threat to the West. He continued his argument by detailing the cultural differences in predominantly Muslim countries. Continuing the argument for the proposition that was honorary life member Mr. Finbar Rogers. He began his speech by some direct rebuttal, arguing that just because something is popular, it doesn't mean it is true or good. Brexit was, of course, mentioned. As the historian, Mr. Rogers then proceeded to illustrate that democracy has never been, or ever will be, an easy ride, and thus who are we to judge. Second up the opposition was our very own social officer, Mr. Con O'Neill, who began by defining compatibility and explaining the origins of Western liberalism. He argued that it is the most dangerous of all the major world religions, because it presumes that it is the absolute truth spoken by God. He rounded up his speech by referencing the beautiful art of public speaking, arguing that if we were in Saudi Arabia, he wouldn't have been allowed to give him the platform that he was given that night. Including for the proposition that was made in speaker, Mr. Ali Raja, he addressed what he referred to as the elephant in the room, that the supposed link between Islam and violence. He then asserted that Islam is compatible with violence, but only in very limited uses. And when violence is justified in these limited uses, the following verse in the Quran states that peace and reconciliation is always the preferred option. Thus, he argues that the core message of Islam is peace, and asked if it was certain people rather than the religion as a whole that is incompatible with Western liberalism. Including for the opposition that was Mr. Conor McNamara, who criticised previous speakers for their reliance on moral relativism rather than the ideology at hand. The Quran, he argued, was not just a spiritual guidebook, but a political ideology. And the atrocities that have been carried out in Islam's name, he argued, are inspired by this ideology. Before the vote was taken, Ms. Shifra Dixon made the important point that in such a contentious debate, respect should always be key for all speakers. Questions were then heard from Ms. Ellie Cooper, Mr. Hugh Dobbin, Mr. Jeremy Muller and Mr. Tom McGinnis. The casting vote on speaker ability for the motion this house believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism read 18 votes for the proposition, 24 for the opposition, and 15 abstentions. Therefore, the motion was rejected. May I take the motion to direct? Aye. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary, for that splendid recitation of the minutes from last week. Now, it is time for private members' business. At this portion of the evening, you may ask a question to basically anyone, uh, council, the speakers, the house, anyone other than me. Uh, I must begin by saying that uh, the, the proper way to submit 
which we don't really observe, is by email, but we did actually get an email uh, piece of private numbers that this from Mr. Kimball Rogers. Now, I feel like it's important to point out here that I am a terribly uncultured young man, and as such, I feel fairly confident that Mr. Rogers has submitted this simply so that he could fill it with many Irish words that I have no idea how to pronounce. Um, so this will be interesting. So, wonder, is there just a motion in the, no, there isn't this, I have to read the entire, great. So, dear Mr. President, in regard to recent events, it seems necessary and expedient that a particular matter should be brought before the House. That being the rhododendron trouble, which is currently causing a plague and a menace within the southern quarters of this island of ours. Esteemed Tiacha? Tiacha? You say the word, you say the Irish words. Esteemed what? I'd rather not. Okay, I'm gonna. Dala? There we go, thank you. For Kerry, Michael Healy Ray has uh, on now numerous occasions called for the Army of the Republic of Ireland. Okay, Nelly, Shame resign. You're English, you can't object. Uh, to be called into a deal with the invasive shrubbery in question which has thus far claimed many lives and occupied several kilometres of Killarney National Park. Look, I knew how to pronounce that word. Uh, do you now agree that this is a matter which should be brought before the attention of the House? And are you prepared to use your office to support the Irish Armed Forces at this particularly turbulent time? Yours faithfully, Vinmar Rogers, H-I-M, P.S. I'm not entirely sure if this lasted as religious polemic or not. Um, I mean, let, let, let's gauge the reaction to the House. P.S. How do you make a Jewish omelette? I, I mean, I have no idea what that is, so... I don't know. Um, so, yes, um, do I agree that this is a matter that should be brought to the attention of the house? Sure, why not? Um, uh, so, does anybody here have any thoughts on the uh, terrible rhododendron invasion down in the south? Anyone at all? God, Mr. Sullivan, please save me. No. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Mr. Neil. Do you have any thoughts on the terrible invasive rhododendron crisis that's currently happening down in the Republic? Why are we talking about this? <laughs> why, why do you think, Mr. Nairn? Why do you think? <laughs> yes, Mr. Nairn. This is a very personal issue for me. <laughs> Coming from the South, every night I lie in my bed and I can't get to sleep. Because <laughs> all I see is the rhododendrons creeping up from my bedside and crawling into my eyes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the House, I urge you to support our fine armed forces in the destruction of this menace. These foreign invaders into our land, they must be destroyed. Thank you. Here, here. As a member of the Rhododendron Preservation Society, I of this motion and say we should have fact stand for the preservation and longevity of the Rhododendrons of Ireland. Thank you, Mr. Mackey. Well said. Does anybody else have a party? Yes, Mr. Doherty. 
What is a rhododendron? <laughs> it's an invasive menace! It's a menace, I say! I have an outward song that's to be protected and loved. I'm not entirely sure. More specifically? Uh, this, listen, do you have an answer to my question? Ah, well, uh, an edible plant. And my motion to the House is that if all RFPs are decided to eat rhododendrons instead of meat, the world would be a much better place anyway. So that's it. Proposed solution. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> yes, we can most certainly vote on that motion. So I think I will move the House to a vote now. So um, I suppose I shall make the motion. Um, Mr. Finbar Rogers did ask you if I prefer to use my office to support the Irish Armed Forces. So I, I will use my office to fit the motion to the House. Uh, so the motion is. This house would support the Irish Armed Forces in the brutal extermination of the rhododendron threat. All those in favour, please raise your hand and say aye. Aye. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 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 all those against the motion, please raise your hand and say nay! Nay! Yeah. Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, I count twenty-one, Mr. Secretary! Uh, and all those who wish to stay in the motion, please raise your hand and say meh! Yeah. Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. I count twenty-two, Mr. Secretary. Is that a tie between the abstentions and the, the eyes? It is indeed. Well then. I wouldn't know what to do in such a situation. In that case, I, I pass the deciding vote as the uh, president. And in this case, I vote as I always do to abstain. Shame as I. Uh, can I get a seconder to Miss Dixon's motion that uh, the, what was it, the island of the world? Sorry? The island of the world would be better if everybody ate rhododendron instead of meat. Ireland. Okay, this house would be better uh, off. No, yeah, this, this house this house would be better off if we ate rhododendrons instead of meat. Uh, can I get a seconder? I second it. Second it? Okay, all those in favour, please raise your hand and say aye! Aye! One, two, three, four, five, six. All those against, raise your hand and say nay! Nay! I'm going to ballpark it and say 32. All those abstaining, please raise your hand and say meh! I'm going to ballpark it and say. 12. 12, yeah, 12 is going to go correct. <laughs> uh, so I believe the motion is defeated at Politics Jurisdiction. Uh, are there any other pieces of private memory business? Uh, oh, I was going to give you Miss Merrick because you did something different, but Mr. Hickman stood. So, <laughs> Mr. President, may I be put to the House that we support our honourable members that are going to be travelling to Scotland this weekend. Uh, wish them the best of luck and full, fully support uh, for their. Uh, their, their ventures in the realm of eggheads. Both the, the honourable members, uh, Mr. Shay Glasgow, and wherever Shay may be, Mr. Lee Matter. Yes, can I get a second? We'll get a little book by acclamation, so that's just a uh, volume of eyes and nays. So, all those in favour say aye! Aye! All those against say nay! Nay! <laughs> all those abstaining say meh! Yeah. The motion is passed! Uh, we do whatever Mr. Hickman advises to do. <laughs> do we have any other? Uh, yes, 
Last week, it emerged that the ridicule of religion, uh, religious polemic, is prohibited under literific rules. As a secularist, I object to this. All ideas should be open to critique and indeed ridicule, whether political, cultural, religious, or otherwise. It is people that we must protect from harassment. That must be our focus. People have rights, but ideas do not. I move that this House calls to allow the ridicule of religion, religious polemic, while prohibiting attacks on people on the basis of religious belief. I appreciate your point, Mr. Murray, I really do. Uh, especially, was it uh, ridicule? No, what was it? You said something, about something, uh, something should be prohibited. Uh, harassment of people. Harassment, yes, harassment. That is kind of the point of the uh, religious polemic world. Uh, so, I, there needs uh, to be a distinction between the two, though. Yes, however, I do not feel that it is uh, uh, correct to put such a motion to the House right now. Yeah, right. Uh, it, would, it would be much better if it was decided. Also, as, as uh, the standing orders are under the sole discretion of the President, I shall uh, consider that most certainly. Um, yeah, the distinction, the distinction probably should be made. I agree. Um, but to uh, I will not. I will not be allowed to go through it right now. Okay. But yes, thank you for your point. Uh, any other uh, items of private members' business, Mr. Dublin? Um, yeah. So over the last week, we've heard various tweets from everyone's favourite Oompa Loompa, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> language that is increasingly ominous with the way that he has talked about calm before the storm, having only one way to deal with North Korea and other such comments in both his infamous tweets and in public appearances. And so I'd like to put to the house how we feel with the fact that national security is by some right now being treated as if it were some kind of mystery novel. <laughs> I guess would anybody care to uh, make a statement on Mr. Donaldson? Yes, Mr. Donaldson. Well, as one of the Americans in the room. <laughs> Shame is <laughs> um, I think it's really concerning. It's really weird because you never really know what Trump is saying is like a joke or something real. And, you know, it is really concerning, but it is comforting to know that Northern Ireland is 3,000 miles away, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And to be honest, you know, Trump is one of those people, you know, he, he's all talk and no games. So, you know, I think for now we shouldn't be too concerned. I think that we'll have to see how North Korea reacts. Um, right now, probably the most vulnerable territory um, is Guam, because that's the U.S. territory that's closest to North Korea. South so, Korea. what? South Korea? No, Guam is the closest U.S. territory to North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, yeah, um, you know, it's really concerning, but I think that's why we just have to keep an eye on things. And um, I would suggest, I know that Trump is coming to Britain soon. But normally he's the Queen, darling, that's the whole thing. That's true. But um, when political leaders come, you can protest them. Um, so hopefully there will be a huge amount of protests. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, if anyone, if one more person would like to say something on that matter. Uh, yes, Mr. Clark. Haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, I threw something controversial in about the whole North Korea issue. Appeasement has failed before. Yes, that, that is a right <laughs> You speak at length, so no. I'm not going to speak at length. It's going to be really short. That's what you say every day. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. No one else. Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Perry. 
I feel that it's in the interests of both the government of the United States and North Korea to distract its people from actual domestic issues by pretending it was a great foreign threat. Yup. Here, here. That's so true. Can I just say I don't think this war is going to happen. I think that um, Rocket Man in North Korea knows that there's um, too much, too much risk from his point of view, and Donald Trump isn't going to push the button. Um, Shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the point I just tried to Thank you for that uh, rising round of uh, private members' business. We shall now move on to a rather brief segment of President's Questions. Does anybody have any questions for me? I shall, I mean, all three of you have already spoken, uh, but you're grinning at me like a maniac, so I this, Mr. Sullivan. Mr. President, <laughs> yes. unlike the elf on the shelf me, and unlike all other things, there is one thing that will never die. And that is the tradition of asking you, sir, what you had for breakfast this Thursday. Uh, I could say something interesting, Mr. Dunn. However, that would be a blatant and bald-faced lie. I simply had uh, shreddies with soy milk and cranberry juice, as I do every Thursday and indeed every other day of the week. So yes, that is my answer, Mr. Sullivan. Uh, Miss Vetter. What was the actual interesting thing you ate today, though? What? Like, Did if, I imply if that? Anything. Uh, oh, well, I, I had a. Um, <laughs> Mr. Bradley and I sojourned to uh, Maggie Mays, just over that one, not the Botanic one. Uh, and uh, we each had one of their super deluxe milkshakes. I had a Cookie Monster milkshake. Uh, would you like to say what you have, Mr. Uh, um, President Emeritus? Predictably, death by chocolate. Yes. Yeah. The <laughs> Are there any other questions? Uh, Mr. Glasgow, you have something to say. As someone who, by virtue of his office, strives towards impartiality in all things, I'd like to ask you what you think of the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, Mr. Robert Newton, lying to the Assembly about his membership of Charter NI, an organisation linked to Loyalist paramilitaries. Yes, I am. I am uh, required by the office to remain impartial. However, uh, without specifically referencing to it is, of course, uh, I feel ridiculous for any uh, public servant to lie when there's not a, uh, a dire need. There can be needs on occasion, uh, but this, this, it seems unlikely that this was one. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm afraid that's all I'm really prepared to say in the matter. Uh, anybody else? I'll take one final point missed out of this. Um, Please. Oh, sorry. Fine. Um, since I assume like you began in the Literary Society as a debater, is it hard to <laughs> <laughs> is it hard to be impartial and to not debate and like say your opinion and stuff? Uh, no, because the, the basic premise of your question is incorrect. Uh, I, I developed a habit of uh, speaking once a year, uh, and that was it. Uh, I just like borrowed, away, borrowed my way into the tech department. Uh, that, that was basically it. Um, so no, I just I can't I really can't overstep just how blind and boring a person I truly am deep to my core. Uh, it's it's not hard for me to express my opinion. I very rarely actually have one. Uh, so yes. Yeah. I, I would like to move on, but very briefly, I'd like to turn the tip somewhat and use President's question to ask you a question. Just very briefly, does anybody have an opinion on this whole scandal, nonsense shenanigans going on down at UCD with their president? Uh, because I, I don't know if anyone's aware 
just to give you a very brief overview, it would appear at this balance of the Tobacco, you appear to know it's having it's it is UCD, yes. Yeah. And it is their student union president. Yeah. Yes. Basically, uh, they at Freshers Time, much like ours, she does and many others, released a booklet, is that correct, of information? And ordinarily this booklet would contain information about uh, abortions, yes. Uh, and Miss Ashko, Ashkow? Yeah, Ashkow. Uh, which one's it? Ashkow, I think. Ashkow? Ashkow. What's her first name? What was it? Katie. Katie. Uh, Katie. Uh, if she doesn't mind the uh, Basically, unilaterally removed this page. She had campaigned on a platform of being neutral, uh, but uh, was herself, before right to stay aligned with the pro life, something to do down to And so many people are outraged and claim she has broken her impartiality. And uh, this cost their union 7,000 euro, euro, I believe, and now a, a rather loud and it seems uh, momentum settling uh, movement has been created to uh, impeach her and remove her from her office. So it's really quite a fascinating situation. Does anyone have any thoughts on, on Madame Spalcher? <laughs> Can I just say to the House that it's my understanding that uh, the President down in UCD removed that information on advice from the lawyers to her students' union because the publication of abortion information in the Republic of Ireland is a criminal offence, so it's completely inappropriate to move for impeachment charges in such a scenario, because what else could she do? For the sake of balance, uh, I should point out that I believe, like I said, it had been published, that information had been published in like, the past 15 years, and no action had ever been taken against them, which is part of the reason why people are outraged because they thought, you know, that technically sounds to them like an excuse, but a lot of people don't quite buy it. Um, Mr. Murr? Sorry, just on your point, there is some. She could have done, she could have stood her ground and resisted. Interesting thought, Mr. Murr. Uh, anyone else? Take one final point. Uh, yes, Madam back there. Yeah, um, I think please, also... please stand. Oh, apologies. No, no, no. I think another problem that people have had with this situation is that she acted unilaterally and didn't delegate to any other members of the Students' Union in that I think she promised to delegate any matters relating to um, abortion in general because she was not impartial on this. So I think a lot of people have a big problem with she said she wasn't going to get involved in a particular issue of this nature and then took a stance which ended up losing the Students' Union 8,000 euro, I believe. If you were to have charges brought uh, on this matter, the most you could be fined is worth it anyway. Which I don't know, but I think that's interesting, but it's a program more anyway. Thank you very much. Yes, I just personally found it very interesting because, with, as we all know, student apathy uh, at what seems to be all-time high records, uh, levels, records, whatever, it seems uh, quite fascinating that such a, a movement is gaining the scene at the age So yes, I shall now uh, move on, move on, and... The next item is a quick vote on prior opinion. So uh, this this is not binding, but uh, if the motion were to be voted on right now, we want to know which side you'd come down on. So all those, just to remind you, the motion is this house regrets the British Empire. All those who would vote in favor of the motion, please raise your hand and say aye. 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 Keep them up, keep them up. Okay, and all those who would vote against the motion, please raise your hand and say nay. Please raise, raise them up so I can count. One, two, three, 
for Mr. Secretary. Oh. And all those uh, who would abstain on the motion, please raise your hand and say, Men! Men. Keep them up, keep them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, 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 Excellent. So, before we move on to the bit, there's just one final item. Uh, we have a very special guest chair this evening. Our guest chair. Order, 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 order. Please, I'm introducing our guest chair. Uh, our guest chair for this evening is a uh, former open representative of the council. Uh, he is a current HLM and uh, formerly a Mr. Now Doctor. Uh, it is my, oh, also a former speaker at this very motion five years ago. It is my uh, great pleasure to welcome our guest chair, my friend, for this evening, Dr. Stephen Goss. It's a Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I esteem it a great honor. Uh, joining the list of learned judges, journalists, noted academics, MLAs, uh, perhaps less so then, uh, <laughs> who have been privileged enough to act as honorary guest chair of one of the societies today. Uh, the last time that we addressed the rather delicate issue of uh, British imperial legacy, we had the late and sadly missed Professor Keith Jeffrey in the chair. Uh, despite our shared appreciation for the satire and social commentary of Gilbert Sullivan's operas, uh, in no sense would I presume to deem myself the natural successor to so eminent a historian. This makes the honour for me all the greater, and leads me to assume you couldn't find anyone better. Uh, however, to the matter at hand. Uh, referencing the, the long-held cliché that the sun never sets on the British Empire, Professor Jeffrey described my remarks to the opposition uh, five years ago, which makes me feel rather old, uh, as the speech upon which the sun never set. <laughs> uh, I assure the House that I will be more concise in my address tonight uh, than on that occasion. So, first and foremost, what are we talking about when we refer to the British Empire? No doubt one quarter of old maps of the world coloured in pink immediately springs to mind, suggesting global dominance, a well-ordered imperial system stretching British rule across all seven continents and maintained by the iron grip of the British military machine. Yet such an interpretation of the British Empire is somewhat inactive. At no point did a British Prime Minister rise to the spatchbox in Parliament and announce to the assembled members and the nation, do you know what we need? Do you know what this country really needs? All the hassle and expense of governing one quarter of the globe. We're going to waste our martial and naval resources on seizing control of Pacific Islands, large swathes of African jungle, vast emptiness in America and Australasia, then massacre anyone who doesn't agree with us. Instead, Britain gradually acquired an empire for basically three reasons. Not deliberate design, but security and national interest, protection of trade, and a concept known as sub-imperialism. In reality, all the British wanted to do was trade with the rest of the world. A nation of shopkeepers, as Napoleon disparaged and equipped, only for it to be subsequently adopted as a badge of pride, the UK was first and foremost concerned with maintaining its trade agreements and routes, eventually enforcing free trade with its uh, commercial partners. Only when trading stations or the exchange itself were deemed to be under threat was action taken to secure it 
by taking or negotiating control of the territory. Indeed, for most of the 18th and part of the 19th century, it was not the Crown which was responsible for policing and governing many so-called British possessions, but private companies determined to protect their business interests. And of course, the East India Company is the most famous of those, but certainly wasn't the only one. Uh, having established very lucrative trade links across the globe, it was then deemed necessary to ensure the roots of that trade were protected. The UK became a nation whose wealth was based upon exports and increasingly arrived uh, on imports. And so securing the main shipping routes became a matter of national interest. Once the other European powers realized how profitable an overseas empire could be, they too went in on the action. This led to the scramble for Africa in the latter part of the 19th century uh, and meant that acquiring chunks of the African interior, or more accurately, preventing rivals from getting it, became essential to securing trade, and most importantly, of course, prestige. Southern imperialism is an important aspect of the growth of the British Empire as well. Uh, having established outposts around the world for trading purposes, settlers arrived to make a living. They wanted to be safe and earn as much as possible, so identifying the dangers and opportunities that only those on the ground can, they said about doing. When you have men like Cecil Rhodes wandering about the place making statements like, and I quote, the more of the world you inhabit, the better it is for the human race. If there be a god, I think that he would like me to do is paint as much of the map of Africa British red as possible. Uh, it's not surprising then that you should start to begin, uh, start to amass territory. Settlers or missionaries, uh, very troublesome missionaries, uh, venturing into the interior from coastal trading stations invariably got themselves into trouble or found great economic opportunities, prompting the government to intervene and accept the fait accompli of British possession of yet more territory. The British Empire, on the whole, was acquired largely inadvertently, in a fit of absence of mind, as some historians have described it. Therefore, the opposition might well argue we cannot regret something we didn't really want in the first place. There may have been reprehensible incidents, which we should certainly show from a Christian form, but they were unplanned consequences of the unintentional. Would the proposition accept such an argument? Can we wash our hands of responsibility for the reprehensible activities of those governing the empire purely because of the circumstances in which they find themselves there? Does it mean we should have no regrets over the dehumanization of the native inhabitants of what is now Australia, so that they were classed as flora and fauna? The hunting of Aborigines like animals in Tasmania? The woefully inadequate response to famine in Bengal? The horrendous treatment of the Mai Mai rebels? These are just some examples that the proposition might refer to in pressing the importance of penitence tonight. There are, however, certain advantages that the legacy of British rule has bequeathed to the world. The abolition of the slave trade, the spread of concepts of parliamentary democracy and common law. Think of the vast amount of railways, ports, roads and communications networks that were British constructs and still throughout the world today. So that's has painted at the thoughts of so many. <laughs> Contrast this with the nature of other contemporaneous empires. The Germans committed genocide in what is today Namibia, systematically overseeing the death of anywhere between 34,000 and 110,000 Herero and Nama peoples. King Leopold II of Belgium established the Congo as a personal colony and effectively oversaw the enslavement of the native inhabitants. 
He sanctioned decapitation and mutilation with the severed hands of Congolese becoming an unofficial currency. The French had a policy of deliberately not educating their subject peoples beyond primary level, as ignorance made them easier to cover. Meanwhile, uh, British African colonies had the highest rates of literacy, secondary school attendance, and the first universities for indigenous populations. The question this evening might well become one of whether or not the benefits outweigh the evils. I suspect Ireland may feature tonight as well, but some sort of English or subsequently British presence in Ireland for over a thousand years is often described as the first colony. Should it be? Our concepts of colonies and empire is largely an Elizabethan construct. Does Ireland count? The semi-imperial way it was governed and treated, even while officially the entire island was part of the UK, may more than justify its inclusion tonight. Is it a prime case study for the proposition? Does the prominent role played by Irishmen and indeed Belfast itself over the centuries in building the empire complicate the matter by making Ireland complicit? I leave it to our debaters this evening to consider these questions. In closing, I shall leave you with the deathbed words of Bengali uh, Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore. The wheels of fate will one day compel the British to give up their empire. What a waste of mud and filth they will leave behind. I look forward to hearing from our speakers this evening whether or not Tagore was right. Okay, members of the House, we as the proposition have the job of defining the motion, and we define it as such. This House regrets the actions, policies, and general existence of the British Empire, which lasted from 1497 with the capture of Newfoundland ending in 1997 with the Hong Kong handover. Now, this debate isn't that Britain has no regrets about its empire, or that this house believes that Britain did nothing wrong. This debate is about regretting the British empire, so we must, as the proposition, give you an alternative to say why, in an alternative reality, the world would be a better place had Britain, uh, had the British empire never existed. Uh, I will tell you these alternatives today, and why they are better. While Jude, the second speaker, will go into more detail about British policy in Ireland and India, and Edmund, our third speaker, will sum up. We will only be talking about what made Britain an empire. It's overseas commonly, so I will start with the Americas. British policy in the Americas was horrific. In North America, indigenous people were wiped out by starvation, forced assimilation, or by being massacred. No thank you. Those that survived had no property rights no sovereignty, and no rights to their culture. This complete disregard for Native American lives and culture can be directly linked to the Native American policies and wars which saw a near total wipeout of Native population and their culture. Without the British Empire, we believed that France would have taken over North America. And we believe this is better, because French policy towards indigenous people was far kinder and far more positive. Intermarriage between French people and indigenous people was far more common, and wars between France and Britain, natives often took the French side. So the decimation of Native American culture, we believe, would not have happened 
had Brit the British Empire never existed. Point. I'll take it. Uh, I would like to add that that's a lot of speculation. I think uh, the French were not very pleasant to lots of people in lots of areas of the of the empire, and also there's a good chance that the Spanish would have been the ones to take the reins in North America. Okay, so the Spanish, firstly, the Spanish Empire by that point, when we really started to colonize North America, had completely fallen apart. Its economy had completely fallen away, so that's not like a point. And the fact is that French policy in Louisiana and other French colonies in New France in Canada as well was a positive uh, policy towards indigenous people, while Britain's was never. In India, uh, this was, would most likely have been taken over by the Dutch East India Company. Um, now, India suffered greatly under British rule. Money and resources went to Britain uh, when it had been spent on art uh, before in India. I'm actually on the wrong page. My bad, give me a second. <laughs> Uh, India, yes, okay. India suffered greatly under British rule. Millions died in rebellions, famines, and wars. Up to 29 million died in famines alone. Indian culture suffered greatly as well, as before money would have been spent on art and culture, while under Britain it was only taken and the culture was repressed. The alternative would have been the Dutch East India Company taking over. While this would not have been amazing either, the Dutch East India Company, due to financial reasons, would most likely have collapsed far earlier than the British Empire, and it would have given India its, no thank you, its independence far sooner than it got its independence from the British Empire. In Africa, the British Empire didn't have a great influence either. Uh, slavery, wars, exploitation, to name a few, no thank you. Even today, former colonies of Swaziland, Lesotho, and Sierra Leone have some of the lowest life expectancies in the world. Now, all empires have this sort of impact on Africa. However, what was individual about Britain's was its policies in, I'm going to talk about three countries in specific, specifically, South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Kenya. We saw mass racial uh, segregation in South Africa and Zimbabwe, something we saw in no other African colonies after slavery was abolished. In Kenya and South Africa, well, saw, no thank you, we saw concentration camps in South Africa, we saw over 100,000 people in concentration camps, while in Kenya, we saw 1.5 million. This, again, was a completely individual British policy. In other European colonies, this did not happen. Given the, and also given the fact that France and Belgium gave their colonies, their African colonies, uh, independence on average sooner than the British Empire, we believe the alternative would have been far better. I'll take it. Yeah, but they only gave up those colonies because, well, France had just been invaded and then, like, sort of went off to be in their colonies after Germany invaded them during World War II. For example, Free France was basically just all of France's colonies. The British just didn't give up their colonies that soon because they didn't need to. The French wouldn't have given them up if they didn't need to. Okay, no, it's, they gave up the colonies because they were no longer financially actually viable at all. And France gave up the majority of their colonies, colonies in the 60s. So it wasn't anything to do with World War I, World War II. In Australia, we saw the genocide of the native population due to a British policy of making Australia a penal colony. This simply could not have gotten any worse for the native population. So no matter what the alternative is, it could not have been worse than what Britain's policy was, because this was complete and utter genocide. Now, with my remaining time, I'll try and attack arguments the proposition may convince you with. Uh, firstly, they may argue that infrastructure and technology was brought to these countries, and this would have not happened had the British Empire never existed. Well, I want you to take a look at Japan and South Korea. 
These are technologically advanced countries. They were never taken over by a European power. And if we are going to go with this logic, that infrastructure and technology is worth the loss of human life, then this house would be glad that the Third Reich went, as the Nazis built the Autobahn in Germany. And it was Nazi scientists that sent us to the moon. It was Nazi scientists that created the nuclear bomb. So frankly, when we compare this logic of saying that technology and infrastructure is equivalent to the loss of human life, it simply doesn't hold up. Also, the fact that they may say that democracy was spread across the world, again, this is a complete fallacy. Look at Africa today. How many democracies do you see? How many real democracies do you see? When Britain left Africa, it was dictatorship, dictatorship, dictatorship. There are no real democracies in many of the countries that we control in Africa. So this idea that we spread democracy into these great things in the world is a complete and utter lie. Thank you very much. Please regret the British Empire. Thank you, Mr. Bryson. Before I call upon the uh, first speaker for the, uh, the opposition, I've been asked to point out that there are several seats still available. Then there's a perfect one. At least one person didn't. Uh, so, then move on to the opposition. And I call Miss uh, Chipper Dixon to open the case for the opposition. Bellum Omnium Contra Omnes. Now, we find about to start on a tribute debate without a good a bit of a master match. What is the word coming to? Um, Thomas Hobbes came up with this phrase during the English Civil War, one of the most tumultuous periods of British history, um, and it means the war of all against all, and it describes the human existence in its natural form. Without an artificial dominant political force, um, countries often descend into civil war and conflict. Um, this is why empire is a fundamentally, fundamentally necessary thing. The opposition tonight will not give an apology for empire, no. We shall not defend those moral abuses perpetrated at the hands of the British. While this doesn't preclude contrition um, at what the British did, we shall instead praise the British Empire. I shall make three points to the House before Ellie goes on to elaborate the economic and international benefits of empire. Firstly, imperialism has been a perennial feature of mankind, and this is a good thing. British Empire was also better than others. First part. Point of Britain? No. First crop just made the case that um, other empires would have treated the indigenous peoples better. Um, this is completely wrong um, throughout history. I can't finish the point. Um, and then lastly, I shall go on to the specifics of bringing political stability, political space in which democracy could thrive, um, and economic development. Firstly, imperialism has been a constant feature of mankind, and this is a good thing. We reject the revisionist view of the British Empire. Being a historical debate, we shall look at human history from the year dot, when his children were just a, gl a glimmer in Adam's eye. For the past 10,000 years, empire has replaced empire, and domination of one group has been usurped by another group. Yes? Um, speaking about human history, my question is very simple. Is it morally, ethically correct to kill, torture, maim people for centuries simply for economic, financial, political benefits? What I'm saying is, it actually benefited the countries themselves. Let me go on. I'm not saying that genocide is a fantastic thing. What I'm saying is, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is, how can anyone in the 
missiles proved that Africa, the Middle East, the Far East was not driven by, by conflict. Unless the proposition can prove that these countries enjoyed peace, prosperity, political stability from their very beginnings, then how can you say that the British left any legacy of colonial division? How can you say that they destroyed the um, institutional stability of those countries? And how can you say that they brought um, uh, conflict instead of peace? No, no. So, the British Empire, with its accompanying array of bureaucracy, judicial systems, and political institutions, changed each country it entered into for the better. Stability replaced strife, prosperity replaced poverty, and law replaced lawlessness. Yes. Um, you said that um, I set up an effective uh, justice system. Uh, but in fact, the system was run from the top down and it often favoured those in power and treated the, the minorities very, very unequally and in, uh, unjust. Uh, on the other hand, um, judicial courts were instituted perhaps for the first time in many places and each, each group in the society, ethnic, class, division, all received a fair trial. Um, um, now, you, Matthew, said, or first prop said, um, repeatedly, that had the British Empire not been there, others would have treated them better. I would make the completely opposite point. If we take an objective view of the empire, we must look at it in its own particular historic context. During the 19th century, European powers raised to claim land in Africa, the Middle and the Far East. This was seen as natural and even desirable as each imperial power brought progress in the form of technological advancement, economic development and stability. However, with the luxury of our compassionate, modern world of nation-states that we now enjoy, we may well condemn the British Empire, but let us look at it in its own historic context. The French, the German, the Belgian, the Spanish and the Dutch empires were spreading with equally voracious speed across the globe. This was accompanied by mass brutality and murders of village populations, which were seen as innately inferior to the aims of other civilised nations. I do not deny that. I am not disputing that. However, I would make the case that these other countries, the Germans, the Belgians, the Dutch, they had a much more cultural and civilising mission than the British ever did. As we've said, as we've already seen, the, the very impetus of the empire for Britain was economic. It was not, it was not a, a sense of... It was always initially economic, and that was followed by political subordination. That was the principal aim. It wasn't what the French did in Algeria, which was to go in and try and civilise and Catholicise the peoples. You know, it was, it was essentially... As someone who was a Like, no. Oh, yeah. um, the Belgians left a legacy of genocide in Rwanda by the Duke of Rwanda Mall. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died. The French have utterly up to stabilise Syria, again, by their policies of divide and rule. The British did not do that. They decided to, to, to co-opt the elites instead of pitting people against peoples. On that point? Where to begin? Planes, trains, technological advancement, irrigation, ports, canals, trade routes. This wasn't just beneficial to the British, this was beneficial to the people themselves. In India, for example, education was provided for all. The train system, it wasn't built by the British, it was, it was built by Indian engineers who were taught to do so. The development we see in China, India, 
other former colonies around the world, where does that come from without the infrastructure? The Suez Canal in the Middle East, would those trade routes, would that globalisation have occurred without the British Empire? I'm not so sure it would have. Now, unless the proposition conclusively proves that countries from Sudan to the Solomon Islands enjoyed economic development, political stability and peace before British involvement, then I think the House must accept that British involvement was a good thing. And in fact, instead of a legacy of divisive and conflicted past, far from causing conflict, did not the British usher in a period of unprecedented peace and harmony? Did they not create the conditions for prosperity, for quiet living, for economic and social development? Were these countries not already driven by civil war? Instead of saying that they occurred because of the British, did the British not prevent them? Instead of leaving a legacy of conflict, may we not argue that the British Empire was in fact ended too soon, that it remained in place for another, had it remained in place for another 30, 40 or 50 years, nascent countries would be I ask the House to regard the British Empire its own merits and in its own time and remove the report from Vishnu's view that history lends us and examine the Empire on its own considerable achievements and in the context of an obsolete imperial world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Dixon. I must uh, do that just before the guest chair uh, takes over again. Just to point out, and I, I'm very sorry, Ms. Bellavis, this isn't directed to you, this is just you've reminded me. Uh, regarding points of information, please don't just you know stand up and start talking. You must say on that point, sir or madam. And if they decline, you do not speak any further. Uh, like I said in previous weeks, the people sitting before you this evening uh, have put a lot of time and thought into their speeches, and they deserve the respect to uh, be able to give them. Also, with regards to barking, just to be clear. Uh, if someone accepts a point of information, whilst they are answering that question, you can't give another point of information. You must let them finish the question. Also, you must allow them to continue with their speech, get them through another at least two sentences. Uh, and if you're not sure, just look at me, catch my eye, and I'll give you a small shake of the head or a small nod of the head to let you know whether or not you can uh, speak. Because if you can't, then I'll just stop you. Uh, so anyway, uh, Dr. Grass. Well, uh, thank you for that the opening argument for the, the opposition. Uh, we now move, of course, back to the uh, proposition, and we have uh, Mr. Jude Perry. Who <laughs> <laughs> is making his maiden speech to the society. Custom that maiden speakers could waive uh, point the right of the House to you like to waive your right to freedom. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Right. Perfect. Okay. Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to have the opportunity, as my maiden speech in this House, to condemn and regret the British Empire. I will prove that this empire is an unscrupulous institution and represents one of the darkest periods in human history. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are unaware of that language, it is
my native language and the language of four and a half million people in the island of Ireland. It is an integral part of my culture and all of our culture. Now, why is it that less than a fifth of that country can speak it constantly and even less fluently? And that is because in 1649, Oliver Cromwell crossed the Irish Sea and declared to hell or to con. Ireland, like so many former British colonies, had been subjected to the barbaric actions of the British Empire. And the effects on our heritage, culture, and people are as clear today as they ever were. But this is a, that is enough about Ireland. I want to focus on a different injustice, and that is India. And as this debate is co-hosted by the History Society, I'd like to offer a few points of rebuttal, specifically from, from Shifra. She will describe the war of all and the prospering nations uh, and the prosper of the British Empire brought nations. But in fact, India had 26% of the global GDP and it was reduced to 3% due to constant blunders by the empire. She also explained about the infrastructure and trains. Those trains are actually used to export natural resources and rob the people of what? Of their own, uh, of their own resources. The empire believed that the best way in India of holding on to power was to ensure that the country was in constant conflict, and so they ensured that Muslims and Hindus were constantly at odds with each other. British Governor Bombay at the time declared that the best way to ensure that our, that our system works is to make sure that people never get on. Nor did Britain work to promote democratic institutions under imperial rule, like Shifra would pretend. Instead of building self-government from the village up, the East India Company destroyed what existed. The British ran government, tax collection, and administered what passed for justice. And Britain's constellation of India was also one of extreme injustice. Crimes committed by whites against Indians attracted minimal punishment. An English man who shot dead his Indian servant got six months, while a, uh, an Indian man who attempted to rape against a white woman was sentenced to 20 years of rigorous imprisonment. In the entire two centuries of British rule, only three cases can be found where an English man was executed for killing a, uh, an Indian man or woman. Indians were excluded from all these functions. When the Crown eventually took charge of the country, devolved power from the top down, unelected provincial councils whose members represented a tiny, educated elite. It is estimated up to one million people died due to sectarian killings and 12 million due to starvation. On that point? Yeah. Can you prove that those sectarian killings were a result of British involvement? How can you say that those would not happen anyway? Uh, India is such a multinational country, um, those things would have happened whether the British were there or not. And in fact, I would argue that they in fact repressed an awful lot of those. Well, I think uh, Shifra, yourself, and the opposition ecology respecter are suffering from a bit of historical amnesia. I think that, um, I, uh, I think that uh, the word sectarian is quite clear, that the British people came and pitted Muslims and Hindus against each other purposely to keep control of this country and kill, kill people in order to maintain their control. Britain came to one of the richest countries in the world of the 18th century and reduced it after two centuries of plunder to one of the poorest. It reduced India's share of the global economy, as I said before, from 23% to 4%. The British empires and the Indian people proved that it is an institution of moral depravity. Yes, sir? Could it not be the case that the British Empire increased the size of the global economy, reducing India's share of the pie, making the pie itself bigger? Um, that case could be made, but the case can also be made that the British people uh, went into India and took its resources and um, destroyed what stood there and what actually worked for them, because as they did the 20% of uh, the global economy, 
Um, so no, I, I, I genuinely reject that point. Um, this House, I believe, as all fine members, would not hesitate in denouncing other genocidal institutions. So no, I believe it's high time we denounce the most malicious, malicious institution of them all. Mr. President, no, thank you. We still are seeing the effects of the empire and their constant blunders. We see, we now, and we are suffering from Britain's plunder with Brexit, even, and it's resonating today. Because Brexit has to be mentioned in every speech. <laughs> <laughs> due to the lack of leadership in the UK and due to uh, uneducated uh, elect electors, we, we now are seeing, in Ireland especially, that we will suffer due to Brexit economically, and if there are hard borders ever implanted, that I, from someone who travels from the south to this university, um, will find that very difficult. So we're still suffering, and the British Britain are still making fun of Mr. President, the British Empire is a tyrannical and totalitarian institution. It is an institution rotten at the core. I would urge this House to reject its broken philosophies and take a stand against xenophobia it is imposed around the world. Good with comrades. Uh, thank you, Mr. Perry. I think he deserves another round for his game. Return to the opposition with Miss Ellie. Uh, Mr. President, uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the Terrific, I would like to start by rebutting one of the comments or the general speech that was made uh, by one of the members of the opposition. He focused immensely on India as a country. I would just like to point out that India is a predominantly Hindu nation, which is. Uh, ultimately means that it's divided up into castes categorically, including one that is an untouchable. So to say that the British came in and made things worse would actually be quite a stretch. I would like to point out, however, as my colleague um, previously did, that we're not here to make excuses for genocide. We're not here to say that um, certainly not all parts of the British Empire were good. We're simply here to say whether regret is the correct term to use for a period of history that is so important and so influential. As our on guest mentioned, the economics are extremely important here. We expanded for economic purposes primarily. The government side of things came after to protect our trade routes and protect our resources. We joined the world through trade and commerce. We created a global network of goods and services, the largest and most diverse of the time. What was produced in one country could be manufactured in another. Now, I'm not going to stand here and deny the fact that we exploited people and we exploited resources in order to increase the wealth of ourselves. However, the system was established to, yes, create wealth for the British, but also to create wealth for local people. Many countries who existed under the British Empire were left in a richer and more profitable state than when they started, explaining why many of former British colonies are still among some of the richest countries today, including Canada, Australia, and Hong Kong, yes. Um, you've mentioned that uh, people have been benefited from it. The only people who have benefited is settlers from uh, the United Kingdom. For example, the natives, the Aborigines. Do you think any of these have actually benefited from British rule? Well, absolutely. Um, so to begin with, many 
so to begin with. Uh, many countries are still left more stable. Hong Kong is actually a very good example where banking, commerce, and monetary services are something an influx of the British Empire that has secured and pretty much established their nation. Technologically, modernization can have many consequences. It forces us forward, it often leaves people behind, but it has countless benefits, and we cannot live in the past for the sake of maintaining people. Two of the most important imperial era technological advances include the train and the telegraph, both British inventions of the 1830s. This excelled and advanced communication transport in ways that has not been seen for thousands of years. On that point? By spreading these, okay, by spreading these inventions across our empire, we increased people's mobilization, we increased people's communication, and we increased the lives of others. Yes. Um, during the Irish famine, a quarter of the Irish people died, and while the Irish people were starving due to the potato blight, the British Empire decided to take our Irish crops and export them. Um, while, Irish, while English settlers lived in luxury, while Irish people simultaneously starved. That's a very good point. Like I said, I'm not here to defend actions of the British Empire. However, it's important to point out that we often put a kind of discriminating factor that Britain discriminated against those in its empire, that we went to British Empire and we treated people differently to the way we treat our own people. Unfortunately, oppressing the lower classes, unfortunately, is just simply a British thing to do, and it's certainly not something we weren't doing in our own country at the time, and therefore it's hardly a result of the empire that that was happening. Um, we connected the world trains and telegraph. The Grand Trunk Airway that joined Canada, the East India and Madras railways, some of the most used and traveled routes in the world. Now, the slave trade was probably one of the most awful events of this half of the of this half of the later millennia. Up until the early 19th, it would be impossible to argue that the British Empire had not benefited from and very much supported uh, slave trade. But from 1807 onwards, this, however, did change, and we made an effort to alter the system. Without the power and the influence of the British Empire, it's easy to say, and it's potentially quite scary to say, that the slowing and the stopping of the slave trade may not have happened. In fact, the West African squadron of the British Empire patrolled slave routes and successfully freed 150,000 enslaved Africans while losing over 1,500 men in the process. It's a scary thought, but the empire may have been what we needed to break the chains of that particular institution. Other cultural norms that we ended include, under the empire include the suti, which is a practice in India or in Hindu countries, which basically means that a woman has to throw herself on the pyre of, of her burning husband, uh, a Hindu practice which was much practiced for the, before the English arrived, one of the many lovely um, things that happened in India before we came along. By preventing this practice, many said that we were putting up an affront to Indian culture, but actually we weren't. It was a necessary act of civilised humanitarianism, and we saved thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of women. At that point, he called it an act of humanitarianism, but is coming into that country and making millions of sectarian killings an act of humanitarianism. Well, I never said that was an act of humanitarianism. I said preventing women from continuing on a practice of a backwards and, oh, to defend our own, our own religion in this, but a backwards religion that forced women to kill themselves, I think, was a pretty humanitarian act, yes. The English language is not the best language, nor should it ever be the only one. However, the spread and widespread nature of the English language is definitely a benefit of the English empire. empire. 
Um, the world certainly shouldn't only contain one language, but having a common second tongue, or as you might put it, a default language, does definitely improve communication, it unites and it connects people through trade and international agreements. I won't forget the day I was in a hostel in Budapest watching a Russian, a Brazilian and a Hungarian have a conversation only because of the fact that we have the British Empire and the ability to do that. When countries stand alone, they are left in isolation, vulnerable to bad weather disease and famine, much seen by the Middle Ages. But when attached to an infrastructure like the British Empire, a support network is formed. When India suffered bad farming, Britain could intervene. When there was unemployment in Britain, workers could migrate to the Commonwealth. Everybody under British colonial rule became a citizen and was entitled to the benefits and opportunities that came with that. The British Empire was a cosmopolitan melting pot which contributed to the multi-ethnic and diverse world that we have today. I would like to end by saying this. The number of hospitals in India went from 0 to 65. Farmland was irrigated and expanded from 400,000 acres to 3.2 million. Schools from 170 to 2,900. The development and internationalization of many British ports, and by 1900, 50,000 miles of road was built and 70,000 miles of canals. To cheesily paraphrase Monty Python, apart from the hospitals, transport, education, trade, democracy, technology, irrigation, and cricket, what has the British Empire ever done for us? Thank you, Ms. Newton, and now finally to the proposition, Mr. Edmund Duncan. Second, I've got. Sorry for sounding like Theresa May. If the F falls at the back, there you know why. <laughs> I'd like to start off by uh, rebuttaling a very large amount of uh, the, the opposition statements, especially by starting off by saying about empire being necessary. Uh, if you look at what's happened since the end of the Second World War, countries like Japan, the USA, and West Germany have managed to have very prosperous economies without having to have an empire. Alongside this, the mention of the idea of countries in peace. Admittedly, the three countries I'm going to mention, New Zealand, Australia, and the United States of America, all probably had warring tribes. However, there was clearly no war on the scale of, let's say, the American Revolutionary War, or the Civil War between Hindus and Muslims in India. Now, sorry. Alongside this, the opposition mentioned the idea of the French in Syria. Well, Afghanistan was a British colony, so I think that says a lot. Also about this idea of, of the Indian train system. Does, that point? does this outweigh the Civil War? On that point? Yes. Says a lot about what? In what, in, in what context? Well, you just said it says a lot about what I'd like to expand on that. Okay, so in Syria we are currently facing a civil war, possibly due to a um, dislike of Western values caused by the influence of the French Empire. On that point? Similarly, similarly in Afghanistan, we have been fighting a war there for a while, uh, a very similar war was fought a century ago from the British Empire. So I'd see those as being very similar. So therefore, the British Empire is at fault. Alongside that, point. yeah, and um, especially in the Middle East, it's actually it's a wee bit harsh, and I never defend the British Empire. But here I am. For example, after the uh, end of the First World War, there was essentially a breakup of the Ottoman Empire, um, which led to mass unrest and chaos. 
And it was actually really the French and the English who stepped in to try and create civil law and protect the, citizens. The war in Afghanistan was before the start of the First World War. Which, which one? No, sorry. No, 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 no. One of the three of them. Uh, alongside this, the idea about um, um, not condoning genocide. Therefore, doesn't that really mean that you regret any form of genocide with, with, within which the British Empire took part? No. Alongside this, the idea that we humanise India. I'd actually see this more as us limiting native cultures as we did to the Maoris in New Zealand, who are effectively now subservient, no? As we did to the Aborigines in Australia. Both of these tribes are now effectively less than 5% of the population of each of their countries and have been heavily marginalised, similar to the Native Americans in the USA. In New Zealand, actually, the, the, the indigenous peoples, the Maori, actually have one of the best representations of other indigenous people in a colonised country in the world. On a state level, however, there is a, a very large amount of um, disagreement and, in cases of racism, uh, from the white non-indigenous peoples. Alongside this, I'd like to mention the idea about not spreading democracy because well, the British Empire did not spread democracy. On what, that point? What we spread was the idea that we were, On that point? Or yeah. we were a very large amount of ideas. Effectively, as was said earlier by my colleagues, you look at the African colonies, Nigeria, say, is it a democracy when there are when there are like dictatorships in these countries, high levels of planning now, that can clearly be linked to the British Empire. On that point? Nope. <laughs> Alongside this, going back to the going back to the idea about Indian culture and the idea that it has grown, as in reference to things like hospitals. It's hard for a culture to grow and pro progress when it is in fact being repressed by a, an empire whose sole motive is to get you tinned. <laughs> also, this idea that, that we need to kill people to give them technology. Do we really need to? I would say no. <laughs> Alongside this, I'd also like to mention that the empire is actually also harmful domestically, and this is why we should regret it. The empire has actually caused inequalities in this country. During the height of the empire in the mid-19th century, the 1834 Poor Law was created and implemented into Parliament. This severely harmed the poor of England. This is despite the fact that we were basically the largest empire in the world at the time and had very vast amounts of money, resources, and goods to which we could sell. I'd also like to mention the legacy of the empire and how this is a problem. This is a quote from David Cameron on a, mes on a, mis a mission to Jamaica, not a message to Jamaica, here's a message to Jamaica admittedly, where he said that Jamaica should move on from this painful legacy of slavery what I believe Mr Cameron there is saying that what we should actually do 
is reflect on that and see clearly that British enslavement of people from the Caribbean was very wrong and should be regretted. That the end. Thank you. Alongside this, I'd like to mention the Falklands War, which is, of course, part of the legacy of the British Empire as it is a former British colony, now British overseas territory. In this war in 1982, there were 907 deaths, all of which could have been avoided had we never invaded the Falklands in the first place. On that point, no, sorry. And finally, I would like to end with the expansion of sport, which I find very annoying because what it has given the Indians a chance in cricket for and the Australians and New Zealanders a chance in rugby for is to beat all of the four home nations every single summer. Finally, our last speech this evening, I'll ask Mr. Matthew Sullivan to close the audience. All right, well, as third opposition, I get a really great role, because instead of getting to make any original points, I instead... <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> The entire debate. <laughs> so, I'm going to start with the first proposition. Now, from the start with the first proposition, they claim, they start with India, and claim that if the British had never gone into India, and you know, hadn't kept India until around what, the end of the Second World War, instead the Dutch East India Company would have gone in. That's a real thing. Apparently people don't know that, though. So, Dutch East India Company, instead of the British one, takes over all of India. That is to say, a giant corporation takes over all of India. Instead of being subjugated by its empire, like the British East India Company was, it just sort of stays there and for some reason collapses on its own, though it's never explained how this would occur. I think it's a lot, no thank you. I think it's a lot more likely that it would just sort of continue to be some horrible corporate state. Next, we talk about South Africa, and how, admittedly, the British did invent the concentration camp there. We separated native peoples from the, from the new white populations, but while this is terrible, I don't really think it compares to the absolute atrocities committed by other European colonial powers in Africa. An, an example given was that when Leopold from Belgium came in and decided to attack the Congo as his own personal colony, the hands of Congolese people became, because you could get a bounty for them, ended up becoming some sort of a horrible currency. Well, thank you. I think it's safe to say that while the British Empire did terrible things, the things they did are kind of eclipsed by the things that other empires did, and would have done more so had the British Empire not been there instead. On that point? No, thank you. Next, we come to the second for the, uh, the first for the opposition. First opposition begins by telling us that imperialism is a constant feature of mankind. Pretty much since civilization existed, there have either been empires or people who were part of these empires. 
they rebut the proposition claim that the other empires would have been better, which is what I was just getting into there. No, they weren't better, and in fact, they were much worse. When the British went into places, while again, they committed atrocities, they, kind of, they left these places being the former colonies with the highest literacy rates, the ones with the most hospitals, the ones with the best infrastructure. Whereas, as an example, the French intentionally left native populations in ignorance because then it's easier to rule them. They mention how, no thank you, the British brought about standard judicial systems to all of the countries under its rule. For example, in India, where there were certain practices like wives having to burn themselves in the funeral pyres of their husbands. Incidentally, not a thing anymore. Incidentally, who banned it? That's right, the British Empire. On that point, sir? No, thank you. Finally, they go on to say that it's very easy to condemn the British Empire from the lofty ivory towers of our modern age, with our democracy and our liberalism. <laughs> they bring it back into historical context. The entirety of Europe was colonizing everywhere that they could. And if it wasn't the British, it would have been them, and they would have been worse. Because the atrocities that they visited on native people were far worse than the ones the British Empire did. No thank you. <laughs> I move on to the second speaker of the proposition, who reminds us at first of Cromwell and the atrocities that he visited on the Irish people. Now, while I'm no fan of Mr. Republican Dictatorship Genocide Man, <laughs> I don't think it's really fair to consider Ireland to be part of the Empire, though I admit that's probably a contentious point. If you're going to say that Ireland was part of the British Empire as opposed to sort of consolidated part of it, you might as well say that Wales and Scotland were colonies of the British Empire. No, they're more of the core well, territories. Like it's a bad information. <laughs> Significantly taken. <laughs> the Republic of Ireland was occupied. Wales and Scotland was not. They were peacefully uh, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, I think you'll find that there was a fair bit of subjugation going on, especially in Wales, what with the marches. Incidentally, there's a place in England still called Marches, a march being a sort of area where you set up a border specifically for the purpose of attacking people over that border. Anyway, to move on to second points, they point out that in, no thank you. In India, native <coughs> populations were treated poorly under the East India Company. However, while first proposition brought this up, if it wasn't the East India Company under the British, it would have been the East India Company under the Dutch, who would have done the exact same things. No thank you. That's not. Wow, I really have not pissed myself. <laughs> I'm going to completely skip uh, everyone else and prop, because that's where the end of my speeches. <laughs> firstly tries to claim that the Syrian civil war and various wars in Afghanistan are some of the fault of the British Empire. Now, I was going to write a point on this, but we're reminded by a very helpful point of information that it was in fact the British and the French who increased the stability of that region after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. It was the British and French who stepped in and stabilized 
these regions. And while, yes, there are still wars there today, I think that those wars would probably still occur if it hadn't been the British, instead of, well, it would just being the French. Another point of information reminds us that the Maori people of New Zealand have, in fact, some of the best representation of anything in any former colony. I'm going to keep moving on with these points. Nigeria is, I, I'll finish very quickly. Nigeria is a dictatorship. They're not. Their president is called, and I hope I don't mispronounce this, Mohamedou Buhari. And I apologize if I did mispronounce that. No, not dictatorship. Finally, very finally, they ask us how any culture, such as those in India, could flourish under an empire that's only there for tea. Which I would like to conclude by reminding everyone that tea is Chinese, not Thank you. the arguments that have been forward this evening, and now I call upon the President to take questions. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, we shall endeavour to have this wrapped up by quarter past the latest. Uh, so I'm thinking ten minutes for questions, about five minutes for Dr. Goss's uh, closing remarks, and then vote, and then off to the pub. Uh, the pub we shall be visiting this evening is uh, Woodworkers. Uh, as per usual, if you'd like a mountain card or whatnot, stay behind, otherwise Colin over there gives away a boy. We'll be uh, amassing people outside and we'll leave whatever he deems there is a large enough number. So, uh, okay, yeah, because we've got the first, the first question. So, does anybody have any questions for the proposition, Miss Bellavis? Um, I think this can go to both sides. Can I do that? Or no, there's a section for that, so we'll come back to you. Okay. So, uh, any questions specifically to the proposition? Uh, they're setting the wrong side this time, but this side. Uh, Mr. Glasgow. I think when we're looking at history, we have to take a sort of, sort of balanced view. Um, looking, looking at Ireland and looking specifically at this part of Ireland, um, to paraphrase the proclamation of the Irish Republic, I think it's true the British Empire did uh, foster divisions, divisions carefully fostered by an alien government. But we've also got to look at the other side. This university was founded by the British with the patronage of Queen Victoria to facilitate the education of Catholics in Ireland. And like, we wouldn't be sitting here today if not for that. If we say that we regret the British Empire, do we also regret this university? I'd like to point out that I have I have many Irish friends. I really do. I, really, I, really, I swear. Uh, yes. Would anybody from the proposition like to respond, Mr. Perry? Is yep. it there? Yes. And to uh, to quote the proclamation no. as well. Uh, it's all independence with our gallant allies in Europe as well. So obviously our gallant allies in Europe are objected to the British Empire. But on your point of universities, look at the universities in Ireland. Because UCD, uh, which is ranked very highly, uh, higher than this institution, I believe. Uh, Trinity, which is ranked higher than this institution as well, I think. So I just want to make the point that we got that institution, uh, university was itself here, regardless of the British Empire being here or not being here. So, no, this debate does not regret Queens, this debate regrets the atrocities and genocide done by the British Empire. Thank you, Mr. Perry. From the opposition like to respond, it looks like Miss Newton. Yes. I'd just like to say that unfortunately the opposition cannot pick and choose what they regret. Either they regret it all or they regret none of it. I'm afraid this isn't a take what you want and leave what you want. So either you regret everything, including this university, or you regret nothing. Uh, 
Anybody have any questions for the opposition? Not being this side. Well, actually, yeah, I missed there. Yes, I'm afraid I can't remember your name. Sorry. Sarah. Please stand. Um, yes. the, uh, I don't remember what your name is, but you said that um, the British Empire um, made things more cosmopolitan and people were able to emigrate and get work. How can you justify that when there were signs in London saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish? Um, 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 I like to start by saying that uh, within Britain itself, yes, this was a problem, but, if, uh, but as you uh, pointed out, many people, in fact many, millions of people emigrated across the world, especially British who faced huge amounts of unemployment uh, within the region itself. So yes, our actions within Britain itself, but obviously this citizenship elsewhere was also um, something that was given to all, all, all aspects of our colonies, and this bit is primarily focused on the empire itself, not necessarily our uh, actions, actions. Thank you, Would anybody from the proposition like to respond? You don't have to, but uh, the option is there. Mr. Bryson? Oh, well, I'd simply like to say that the, the, the citizenship was granted them very late in the empire. There was many people who were in the empire who simply killed as they were told that they weren't important and that their cultures weren't important. So the idea that they were all given citizenship and jobs is, is frankly maybe true very, very late on, but for the vast majority of the history of the empire, it's completely untrue. Thank you, Mr. Bryson. Uh, any questions just generally on the motion? I believe Ms. Bellavas had one. Ms. Bellavas, just for the sake of time, you have one minute. Uh, I'm trying to think. I agree um, Both sides sort of made this argument of like, well, if this country hadn't colonized, another country would. So for sort of both sides, um, why can't you imagine a world with no colonialism, not saying no empires, because empires have existed before, but why can't you imagine a world with no colonialism? Why do you see this as the best system? Beautifully succinct. Uh, I'll take the, uh, okay, well, I'll get the opposition first. Ms. Dixon. Um, we're not saying that empire is to be divided. We're saying it's a fact of life. We're saying it's deeply rooted in human nature to dominate and subordinate other people. We love them for Empire was just a fact of life. Since 1917, sure, we've developed a system of nation state, like, fantastic, lovely, we can all be friends now. We never go and dominate, we never go and invade other we never annex people and we cough Crimea and we cough shade with Adam Marshall. But um, I'm not saying empire was necessarily good, I'm saying it was a fact of life, I'm saying it was a necessary evil in fact to stop conflict. How do you think that we have a peaceful society? Because we have a government who can dominate us all and put us in prison if we do anything naughty. <laughs> <laughs> just think of, of the empire as a, as a form of that almost. It's almost. If you like world government, right? But it's not world government, it's form of world government as it's, it's a bid to establish peace in different colonies on that. I think I'm mm -hmm. Would anybody from the proposition like to respond? Yes, we don't. I think what the opposition is trying to say there is that none of us should have free will and we should just listen to whoever governs us, which I don't really find We said that we should just have uh, people that rule us and make sure that what we do, make sure we go in jail, when that seems quite oppressive to me because why should everyone, why should a select few decide exactly what we should have to do. Unfortunately not, but if you're really clever, you can work it into your answer to the next question. Uh, so, thank you, Mr. Does anybody have, and um, this is probably the uh, last question for Prop Off on understanding, so whoever is most enthusiastic gets this one. Uh, does anybody have any questions on the proposition not being this side? 
Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sorry. The third speaker said about the Falklands War being a reason against the empire. Well, I think uh, you'll find this a reason why the empire was so good, because everyone in the Falkland Islands, far few, supported the British troops enough, so it shows that they really supported the British occupation of the Falkland Islands. And in the decades after, there was a referendum which showed 99.8% support in the Falklands people for the British empire. Thank you, sir. Can we get a name for the minutes? Any name will do. Oh, <laughs> more probably. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying that a very large majority of the Falkland Island population is British. They are not natives. And as well as this, it is a very, very small island with a population of certainly less than 50,000, I believe possibly less than 10,000. And therefore, it is insignificant as a country compared to somewhere like India or America or Australia or New Zealand. And uh, therefore, sort of the fact that the people support uh, what is effectively uh, a, rep a repressive state against uh, the Argentinians who technically own it and had owned it since the very early 19th century, where it was just a landmass, they built upon it, they tried to create it as uh, part of their sort of state, not necessarily an empire, but uh, and then British stole it, effectively. Thank you, Mr. Deputy. Uh, for the proposition, who would care to respond? Again, uh, you've got the opposition side. You don't have to. The option's there. You can choose not to take it. Um, Ms. Newton. I'll happily respond by saying I don't think anyone in the Falklands Islands would appreciate you calling them insignificant. Um, I think, that's, I think that pretty much sums up um, what he said there. And in terms of the free will thing, I believe that the majority of us here would say that we have free will even though we live under a government that can imprison us when we choose to uh, impart our free will onto others. I think that makes us a country of oppressive people. Thank you, Mr. Newton. Uh, and one last question for the opposition. Who would like to ask a question to this fine side of speakers? Anyone at all? Going, Mr. O'Neill. Uh, Miss Peroni, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies, Mr. Fatboy. Uh, <laughs> not going to let this die. Um, I don't want to, to fall into a relativism here, but I will fall into it. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I like uh, kind of feel that this side of the, of the camera will talking about all the good things about the empire and all the good things about colonialism, forgetting still the other part that the proposition is taking to the table. So. It's not only to take in the good part and then say, no, the genocide isn't good, because it was also a part of the colonialism and of, of, of the imperialism, is it? Yeah. So my question is, um, how can you be, um, how can you, no, how can you not regret the British Empire when you are only taking the good things and just falling about, and blooding about the, the bad things? Here, here! <laughs> I'm Spanish, so I'm, I'm too tired then. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Mr. Ronnie. Uh, is it Mr. Dixon? Mr. Sullivan? Or Mr. Newton? Or Mr. Sullivan? I honestly can't tell. Mr. Sullivan, are you going to Mr. Sullivan? Well, I do get your point. I mean, I, in general, prefer imperialism. However, I think that the benefits that we've spoken about are relatively specific to the British Empire, more so than to other European empires. And I feel that, yes, 
there were terrible things happening in the British Empire, and I do feel in general bad ways of good of that. But I feel that if it were not the British Empire, it would have been the French or the Germans, the Dutch or the Spanish, the Portuguese, or the you get my point, and they would have been worse. And then the benefits would have out then the negatives would have outweighed the benefits even less. And that's why it's better that it was the British Empire than anyone else, even if it would probably have been better if it wasn't anyone. Thank you, Mr. Sullivan. Would anybody from the opposition care respond? Yeah, we, we didn't make an argument against the fact that there was uh, colonization from other countries. We were simply stating, and we gave you many examples of individual things that Britain did, the, the camps, the racial segregation. You simply said that, oh, well, other empires would do worse without giving one single example, without giving one single policy. We gave policies, we give examples, and that's it. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Uh, thank you, Mr. President. 
Um, at the, the start of my opening address, I uh, suggested. Keep going. <laughs> uh, I suggested that the legacy of British imperialism was somewhat delicate. I think we've got a sense tonight just how raw it is still uh, from the uh, exchanges uh, this evening. Uh, we had some very, very good, very interesting points from both sides. Um, the proposition started off the somewhat speculative, despite the last uh, remark we made, speculative um, speech on why the world would be better uh, without the British Empire. Uh, nonetheless, we, we did hear about uh, the 21 million who died under the rise, racial segregation in Africa, the fact that rights weren't universally enforced across the empire. Um, the empire was blamed for US policy towards uh, Native Americans. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, the Frankenstein's monster that is the United States was not used as an argument against the British Empire. But, but the, um, uh, we also heard from the proposition that the British Empire was one of the darkest periods in human history. Uh, Ireland suffered as a result of it. India was bled dry, we had divide and rule tried across, injustice everywhere. Uh, Brexit was, of course, brought in as well. Uh, Afghanistan, we mentioned as well. Afghanistan is an interesting one because there were numerous attempts to colonize Afghanistan uh, throughout the 19th century, unsuccessfully. Uh, the Russians tried to invade in the 80s unsuccessfully. There was an invasion more recently, which was also unsuccessful, so the, the Afghans seem to be the most potent force against imperialism that the world has, has ever seen. Um, the uh, issue of native cultures being noted was also raised by the, the proposition. Uh, the point that democracy in particularly African colonies uh, has failed uh, post-independence was pointed out. Uh, is that fault of the British Empire? Uh, the proposition mentioned that how much better it would be if, if Britain had stayed longer in some of the, the colonies. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a policy of not withdrawing until uh, stable uh, native governments had been established. So it would be a process, but the independence movements that were uh, so strong in the 50s and 60s prevented that from happening, and that perhaps is why we ended up with uh, democracy feeling across, across Africa. Uh, the proposition brought up the impact of the British Empire on the UK uh, as a negative. Uh, I'm surprised that we didn't hear from the opposition the positive aspects uh, of the uh, British Empire. Perhaps there aren't any. Um, and that uh, brings me nicely on to the, the opposition then. Uh, it was pointed out that Empire was necessary. Uh, that the point of course that you can't justify the abuses that took place under it, but at, at least the British Empire was preferable to the other European colonial uh, options. Political instability, political stability, and democracy may have failed in a lot of countries, but it has survived in many others. Not just those white colonies that became the Dominions and the Commonwealth thereafter. Uh, Botswana, for example, has had a uh, perfectly stable democracy since it was granted independence in the 1960s. The opposition pointed out that empire is inevitable, which I, I think uh, is a, a fair point to make, that there was going to be empire anyway, so why not, why shouldn't it be British empire? <laughs> yeah. uh, on which point, I think that the Russians have got off rather likely tonight. Nobody has brought them up. We've had Spanish, the French, the Portuguese, the Germans, uh, Britain of course, but uh, nobody has mentioned the, the Russians. I mean, uh, their eastward sweep across Asia uh, 
was particularly brutal for the Asian populations there, but uh, they have been uh, forgiven, it seems. <laughs> uh, the opposition also pointed out that many of the indigenous societies and cultures that were, as the proposition pointed out, suppressed by the British Empire are not necessarily better. We do have Sufi. We mentioned, of course, we have the Tuggy in India as well, from which we get thugs. The bands used to strangle unsuspecting individuals who are making their way along the rooms of India. They're also stamped out by British forces. Some former colonies are wealthier now than when Britain arrived. That was the uh, opposition point of argument, and uh, again, it is not just the uh, white settler countries either, in the example of uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, for example. Um, and we uh, can thank or condemn, as the case may be this evening, a Belfast man, Sir Henry Pottinger, the acquisition uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, the opposition uh, pointed out as well, of course, that the lower classes in the UK were oppressed during the period of the British Empire. Uh, so it was not just colonial subjects who uh, were, were oppressed and denied their rights under the British Empire. Does that justify that this was the, the House of the Sign this evening? Uh, the abolition of the slave trade was again mentioned and the necessity of the empire to do that was brought up. But of course, again, the proposition have pointed out that the empire initially was a major proponent of the slave trade. We have that wonderful trading triangle between Africa in the United States and uh, some of the uh, ports uh, in England, um, which fueled and uh, expanded the slave trade. Um, opposition uh, pointed out to say that other empires uh, worse. Uh, also mentioned that the point was sort of touched on, perhaps it could have been developed more this evening, that can we judge the British Empire today? Should we hold it to account by the standards that we have today? Should we judge the British Empire by the standards of the 19th century. Um, Mr. Republican Dictatorship Genocide Man. <laughs> it's a wonderful description of Cromwell, and I think it uh, perhaps might be a quote of the evening. Uh, and I'm certainly glad that uh, nobody on the opposition didn't, uh, attempted to defend Cromwell this uh, evening either. So uh, I shall now, as I've been uh, informed by the President that we're under pressure to leave, uh, bring things to a close and uh, finish by asking you the House to decide whenever it comes to the British Empire. Uh, is it, as the opposition have suggested, something that uh, we shouldn't regret? Was Kipling right whenever he suggested that empire was the white man's burden taken off reluctantly and uh, without any gratitude from the natives? Or have the opposition, uh, the proposition made the point firmly that the British Empire was indeed one of the darkest periods in human history? Dr. Goss, and uh, might I just say that after five years, the sun has finally set on your contribution <laughs> to this particular motion. Uh, so yes, at long last, we move to the deciding vote. Uh, I've been informed that I was a little unclear at some point uh, in various weeks about this one, so to be very clear. This is a vote on speaker ability. It may seem strange, but that's simply how it's done. It is not uh, whether you're sitting there right now thinking, yes, I terribly regret the British Empire, or no, I do not at all. It's whether you think this side spoke better, that side spoke better, or whether they both spoke equally well, I could terrible what you wish to express. Okay? <laughs> so, the motion this evening was, this house regrets the British Empire. Could all those who would like uh, to vote this way uh, please raise your hands and say aye. 
No opinion whatsoever. Please raise your hand and say loud, say proud, say meh. have been counted and we have for the proposition 38, for the opposition 11, abstentions 13. Therefore the proposition happens, even Mr. President.